Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there, and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode are Emmett and Mike from the My Wall Street Analyst team. Today, we're talking about Peloton's CEO switch-up and the potential of it being acquired, why investors are so excited about the new Grand Theft Auto game, and we also give our TLDRs on earnings from Chegg, Twitter, Disney, and Chipotle. Emmett, Mike, welcome to this week's episode of Stock Club. Mike, you did a very good job hosting last week. I, I kind of felt like my job was under threat of it. Yeah, I know. Thanks very much. <laughs> we, we discussed that uh, when we were off air as well. We all agree <laughs> your job is under threat. Yeah, that's uh, <laughs> not fair. I feel like I feel like, a, I feel like a Peloton employee at the minute, but we'll get into that in a while. Yeah. The worrying part there is that I've been like hosting when you're not around for a while now. That's the first time you said that. So, <laughs> yeah, it took you it took you a while to find your feet. Uh, before we get into today's stories, I want to quickly talk about a story that Anne Marie, who's who's not with us today, but she posted to our shared Slack channel just before we came on air. And, you know, we've obviously talked about NFTs quite a lot on this and profess our own ignorance on them. But she shared a story about uh, a group, I think you call them groups of NFTs called Doodle Dragons. And it's just emerged that, so Doodle Dragons were set up, they were a group of NFTs. I think they were kind of based around dragons, uh, obviously enough. But uh, in the last few hours, um, so sorry, people were buying into these and the money that was spent on these NFTs was supposed to go towards animal charities, I think, or, or endangered um, animal charities. But on the Twitter account, the the owner of the NFTs or the, the leader or, or the man in charge, I don't know, the captain, tweeted uh, earlier today saying, I'm actually, the charity is changing to my bank account and then signed off with saying, see you nerds, and has closed the Twitter account and pulled the NFTs completely. And it's, oh. it's I suppose, what they call in the industry a rug pull. Mike, we were talking oh. earlier this week about NFTs in general, and you had some very strong opinions on NFTs. Would you care to recount them here? No, I don't want to. I don't want to be the subject <laughs> of a lot of ire, so I'll keep mm. my thoughts to myself about all of that kind of stuff. Yeah, stick um, with the NFTs. Yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunity for fraud in NFTs, and a lot of people will get hurt, like yeah. Doodle Dragons. <laughs> what that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> Emmett, have you bought any bored apes? No, nothing. I've no interest in it. I have to say, I, and I mean that literally. I find it hard to even rise my interest to read an article about an NFT. Yeah, well, actually, before we start, I would actually love to put a, a call out there to anyone listening that if if you know more about NFTs than us, which isn't a high bar, admittedly, <laughs> get in touch. I'd love to. I'd love to hear some opinions from people that listen to Stock Club on on maybe what we're missing in terms of NFTs or, or the wider crypto space. Because um, yeah, I think we we come on weekly and we show our ignorance about these things. Uh, let's move on to stuff that we do know about, though, or, or think we know about, and we're going to go to Peloton first. So what a week it's been for Peloton. Over, if the past couple of months weren't tough enough for the company in the past few days we've seen and deep breath i'm going to list out a few things here we've seen rumors of a takeover with amazon nike 
and then Apple as well being mentioned by different publications as, as interested in taking over the company. We've seen the ousting of the CEO and co-founder John Foley, former CFO of Spotify and Netflix coming in to replace him. We've also sadly seen the axing of 2,800 jobs at the company, with some journalists reporting that the employees actually found out they were fired when they no longer had access to the company's Slack account, which uh, if true is pretty bad. Look, we've been talking about uh, Peloton a lot on this podcast over the past few months, you know, it's, it's, um, it's uh, issues with uh, sales, you know, it, it's dropping demand and um, all of these things. But with these recent developments, it's kind of hard to know where to start. I suppose a lot of this recent pressure really began two weeks ago, though, when the activist investors Blackwell Capital started calling for Foley's head and pushing for this acquisition. Mike, can you give us a quick overview of where the company was at the start of this year and how this turbulence has kind of precipitated? Yeah, I'm actually, I'm going to go back even further than that because while the activist investors and kind of everything is coming to a head now, this has been, this has been coming to the fore for maybe the last, since uh, 2021. So kind of going to recount this quick and tell me yeah. to slow down if I need to, but uh, Peloton was the worst performance stock in the NASDAQ in 2021. It dropped 76%. Uh, throughout 2021, John Foley, the CEO, sold $96 million worth of shares, all while kind of making positive comments about the company as well. Um, it was kind of sinking anyways in the early part of 2021, along with a lot of the stocks that were kind of nuts in 2020. So it's a good time to point out that from its IPO to the end of December 2020, Peloton was up more than sixfold. So yeah. a pullback was expected, but then it kind of all came to a four there about... Well, it was Peloton's Q1 of the fiscal year 2022, which would have been kind of Q3 2021 for everyone else. Revenue slowed down to a trickle, posted a huge loss slash revenue guidance, forecast another huge loss coming. Expenses were out of control and the stock absolutely cratered. I think it fell about 40% in one day or something. You know, there's the Warren Buffett quote, only when the tide goes out do you see you swimming naked. Well, this was low tide for Peloton. A lot of um, naked. Yeah, <laughs> it, it would then go on two weeks later to conduct a secondary offering after saying it wouldn't raise any more capital. January of this year, we saw cut production of new bikes over weak demand. It also cut its subscription guidance. And then finally, we find ourselves here. John Foley vacating his position as CEO after a stream of mismanagement and pressure from activist investors, kind of leaving a trail of destruction in his wake. And unfortunately, almost 3,000 people without a job. So I that's that's a fair series of management missteps over the course of 14 months yeah and so do you think it was do you think Foley had to go you know we we often talk here at my wall street that you know we love to see a founding ceo as as you know still ahead of a company that's something we look for an investment but you know when you're listing off that kind of that that role role honor there um it, it seems to me that Foley really needed to leave at this point yeah it seems obvious but i there's another question to be asked here and is has Foley actually left? Like he still owns, so Peloton has dual class stock. So Foley shares are worth 20 times the voting power of common shareholders. So Foley still has a 40% uh, control of the voting rights of the company. So yeah. while he's not running the day to day anymore, he still has an incredible amount of control. And it's actually quite impressive that the active investors, activist investors ousted him because with that much control, you know, he, he had to jump himself rather than be pushed. Yeah. And so I suppose, I suppose the performance of the last year and kind of 
the, the series of missteps. And I think they, the, the pitch is public from Blackwell. And uh, there's, there's a slide in it that shows Foley's own quotes. Yeah. And he's basically saying he's met the CFO like once in the last three months. He hates finance. He, all of this like <laughs> is in like self-deprecating stuff from the CEO of the company while the stock is plummeting. So yeah, yeah, not a but, great um, look. Not a great look. But it's a bit of a catch twenty-two here as well because Foley loses well, not loses his job, steps away from his job, and like to great fanfare, the stock was up twenty-five percent on the news. So he ends up losing his job and ending up a hundred million dollars richer from the stock that he owns so figure that one out <laughs> i know um, Emmett, i want to come to you because you've been around the block a few times in terms of investing and like i'm really curious have you can you recall this ever happening before like i remember not so long ago when we were talking about peloton we were talking about the fact that they couldn't ship their products fast enough to consumers mm-hmm. there was these big waiting lists because the demand was so high now we're looking at the situation where they, they can't give them away, apparently. Have you ever seen such a, a quick turnaround or a quick change in fortunes for a company like this? Yeah, there's probably a few, James. I, I think we touched on a, in a previous podcast, and it was during the Atkins diet craze in around the year 2002, where Krispy Kreme donuts was growing like gangbusters. They were opening, opening new donut stores on every corner in America and spreading across Europe, as far as I recall. And then like wildfire, this diet craze came in, the Atkins diet, which was a low carb diet. Everybody was doing it. Everybody mm. was doing it. And, and Krispy Kreme donuts sales dropped precipitously and i think it also had a a cliff edge moment on its share price after one quarter and they actually said in the quarter uh, quarterly call which was i was listening to at the time that the atkins diet is is really ruining our business model so when you cut forward to today um and i think we joked recently that um peloton is the crispy cream of uh of sports and fitness but it feels like that, the that same is a kind comparison of i imagine they would hate <laughs> I've no doubt. Well, Krispy Kreme did rise again. So hopefully the metaphor plays forward for Peloton. But um, yeah, so the way I often look at things when it's a consumer facing product that I can look at and see and experience, would I buy one? So our listeners should ask themselves, would I buy a Peloton now? And I believe that the vast majority of people would not. So definitely when we're all locked in at home, a super normal event, nobody alive has gone through what we collectively, the whole planet has gone through over the last two years. We were told to stay at home and suddenly this small box was our was our recreation space it was our office it was our gym it was everything else and of course peloton was a very attractive product with that context the world has opened up hopefully the worst is behind us when it comes to this awful virus and i wouldn't buy a peloton no way it's just a giant big clothes horse yeah well interesting but i suppose part of the the thing i think that i find so interesting with this and obviously rory is the the resident peloton bull around here so if you want to find out his opinion you can check that out in my wall street app or we'll get him on the next podcast rory was missing the last podcast we were talking about peloton i think yeah he's 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 fine he's uh he's booking a lot of strategic annual leave or or, or making himself unavailable (laughs) at strategic times we'll get on we'll get him on soon but what I find is really interesting is that although you know they're, they're struggling to sell these expensive treadmills and um, and bikes, the engagement rates with the Peloton um, you know platform and, and with the products themselves when people have them are still very very high. Mike, I think recently mm. we mentioned people use them every second or third day, even still. So I suppose 
that sets up there's something in there in this peloton idea there's there's something that does appeal to a certain you know group of people or, or type of person and obviously now there's a lot of uh, i don't want to say shark circling but i'm going to say shark circling in terms of the likes of amazon nike apple are all being thrown out i want to throw it over to you guys who do you think if peloton is to be acquired as blackwell's hope they are who do you think would be a good fit for them who, who do you think could could bring peloton or the idea of peloton back up uh to where, where it was yeah i mean you basically said it there the the value of a subscription business is kind of what makes it such an attractive acquisition prospect and that's what blackwell has been pushing too i i, I just i have a little kind of theory slash conspiracy theory in my head that considering give, give it to us give it to us well considering the power that foley has still over the company with 40 percent voting uh control that there was kind of a, there was kind of a compromise met between him and Blackwell, where he'd be like, "I'll step down as CEO, but we're not selling the company." And I think there's, yeah, I could be completely wrong. Maybe the new CEO uh, McCarthy from Spotify and Netflix is brought in to oversee an acquisition. But just considering his experience in subscription businesses, it looks like he's a long term play there. So I'm hopefully I I don't want to see Amazon or Apple come in and get this business. At a bargain, mm. so I'm hoping there isn't an acquisition. Okay, I tend to agree. I agree with that. And actually, I know that Tim Cook said in a conference call recently that the future of Apple is healthcare. So you know, you could look from a helicopter and say, yeah, the Peloton Peloton fits within that, I suppose, vision and portfolio towards that vision. Or indeed, you could look at Google and say, well, they acquired Fitbit, so clearly they, you know, they probably want to go into bigger devices and more meaningful subscriptions. However. Apple and Google, I believe, have, well, of course, they have the resources to do it themselves probably better. And when you kind of couple that with what Mike just said, which is a probable lack of willingness from Foley, I just don't think it will be acquired. Um, and I don't know who the perfect suitor would be. You know, there's all the usual suspects, Lululemon or Nike or Apple, Google, whoever. I don't know. But I don't think we're going to see an acquisition at this stage. You know, my prediction, Did you is, see? My prediction is that on this podcast next week, the main story we'll be talking about is <laughs> X has acquired Peloton. <laughs> Don't you Wait, know? You've, you've seen how fast the story is moving. I'm afraid it's going to happen between recording the podcast and publishing. It. <laughs> yeah, and you better believe I'm publishing. I'm not letting you guys know. <laughs> We're publishing this just for the listeners. We're publishing this on Thursday afternoon. It's half two in the day Dublin time. So in the probably what less than 15, 14 hours it takes between finishing recording here and publishing if Peloton are bought, well, uh, you can get your insults into Mike and Emmett for next week. Let's move on then, guys. And on to some better company news, I suppose. So shares in Take-Two Interactive spiked some 10% last week, which I think it's fair to say is a rare sight in the current market. After the games, or the game, after the company's development studio, sorry, Rockstar, announced the latest game in the Grand Theft Auto series was in development. In a post on its website, the company said, we are pleased to confirm that active development for the next entry in the Grand Theft Auto series is well underway. They didn't give any release date, uh, but the news alone was enough to uh, excite investors and gamers alike. The last addition to the Notorious series, GTA V, that was a knockout success for the games developer. It's still making an incredible amount of money for the company, even though it was released eight years ago. And I think the last I saw it, it sold over 160 million copies to date. So the money they're making from actually selling the game. And then obviously there's a massive online element there where they continue making that recurring revenue. In fact, in total, the whole Grand Theft Auto series, so all the games together, they're estimated to have brought in more than $6 billion for Take-Two uh, over their lifespan so far. 
Um, Emmett, I know you're, you and your sons play video games quite a lot. I doubt you're going to be introducing them to New Grand Theft Auto yet, are you? Not yet, James. I think they need to know how to drive a real car before <laughs> GTA warps their understanding of the rules of the road. But however, I'll say once they get their driver's license, I'll insist that they practice their three-point turns and reverse around corners inside Vice City or San Andreas yeah, or wherever. Yeah, I remember that when I was younger, uh, when you used to be playing Grand Theft Auto, and sometimes you played so much, you'd get bored and you'd start like abiding by the rules of the road and like stopping at traffic <laughs> lights and like do, driving properly. But like onto onto this news for Take Two as a whole, you know, Take Two is one of the companies in my Wall Street shortlist. When we compare, actually, when we compare both, I suppose, our main gaming companies in the My Wall Street shortlist, Take-Two and Activision Blizzard, they, they have quite a different strategy in terms of gaming. Activision Blizzard has the likes of, you know, uh, Call of Duty. These are nearly annual games publishing every year, whereas Take-Two has Grand Theft Auto. It also has the likes of Red Dead Redemption. And these are games that come out maybe once a decade or, or once a half a decade. How, how do those two differing strategies work for these companies, Emmett? Well, for a start, James, I actually think their fundamental strategies are very, very similar. I, I okay. did a, a superb case study, I suppose, about 15 or 16 years ago, based on a book called Blue Ocean Strategy by Rene, I think it was Rene Moburn and um, W. Chan Kim, I think were the authors. And I highly recommend this book to anyone who's interested in investing, which I hope we have a few of. Anyway, the actually, the study was on console, consoles and specifically the Wii, but it's very relevant to your question. At the time, PlayStation and Xbox were locked in a bloody red ocean battle selling consoles with the latest multi-core processors and sound cards and whatnot with these boxes that you plugged into your TV, you sat down on a couch to play with a handheld console that primarily was interacted with via your thumbs to play games that had the latest Hollywood actors doing the voices in the most beautifully designed characters and imagined scenery and so on. So PlayStation and Xbox were then, and to this day are in essence the same thing. Then yeah. along came Nintendo, who plotted out all the various attributes of gaming and inverted them to their advantage to design a console that you needed to stand up to play, you know, wave your arms around like a fool to control, barely passable graphics with completely crappy design values, but tons of fun. And Nintendo sailed off into the blue ocean of no competition. Well, when you look at Activision and Take-Two, they're the same ilk as Sony and Microsoft in their own parallel industry. You don't buy a game because it was developed by Activision or Take-Two. You buy it because you like it. You want to disappear into Skylanders or into Grand Theft Auto World or wherever. And the characters and backgrounds and, you know, the physics engines for both uh, Activision and Take-Two are of equally impeccable standard. And what's really compelling about Grand Theft Auto, as you rightfully said, is that it recently surpassed 160 million units sold, making it the second highest selling game of all time after Minecraft, which I think shifted like... 250 million units or thereabouts. But mm. when we look at the league table of computer game sales, you'll find Grand Theft Auto makes multiple appearances. It's like looking through the best albums or the biggest selling albums of all time. You're going to see a whole pile of Beatles and ABBA and Queen and U2 or whatever. So when you look through the league table, San Andreas is in there at number 27. So, uh, and that's a kind of an, I think, in October. Uh, 04 game that was a grand theft auto and then it's also in, in 
place number 34, Grand Theft Auto 4, and so on. So it's safe to say that Grand Theft Auto is not only an important series for Take-Two, but this is a legendary production in the realm of entertainment. And if you played it, you know it, you've seen it, you've lived it, you know that when you're in GTA World, it's something special. And But if you have not played Grand Theft Auto, let me describe its, I suppose, fiscal impact beside what IMDb is telling me here in front of me are the top three viewed movies of all time. So Titanic is the most viewed movie ever, according to IMDb. It grossed $660 million. E.T. grossed $438 million. And The Wizard of Oz grossed something like two million bucks, but it was released 103 years ago. So between these three giants of the silver screen, we're talking about the, the three most watched movies ever, and they generated $1.1 billion in revenue. But as you said, since its 2013 release, Grand Theft Auto has generated more than $6.5 billion in revenue. But let me, James, go at it from another angle. Rather than comparing GTA to the most watched movies of all time, I think it's fair to put it beside the highest grossing film of all time, which was Avatar. Um, it made in its entire lifetime value $2.8 billion. Again, completely dwarfed beside GTA's $6.5 billion. And that is why it's an absolute matter of fact, as opposed to opinion, that Grand Theft Auto is the most financially successful media production of all time, which I know is quite amazing if you're not a gamer yeah. and completely unsurprising if you are. But mark my words, the lifetime value of the GTA franchise is a multiple of what it has generated to date because computer games of this type, which I, I suppose you describe as uh, high-end first-person open-world yeah. games, AAA, they evolved they with... Oh, really? I didn't know that. What's that stand for? I think that's just the, the standard of, of those kind of oh, you know, yeah, yeah, right. games I that see. aren't released as often. Mm. Okay, interesting. So they evolve with platforms and each time there's a release, it creates this beautiful thing called nostalgia that lasts a lifetime. So if there is a strategic difference between Take-Two, it might be that they go into painstaking detail at the yeah. cost of release velocity. But beside Activision, it's the same strategy, James. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's the point that they put so much time and effort, but then the, the the long tail in terms of revenue and engagement they get from these games is incredible. It sounds like I was lowballing how much uh, how much the GTA series might have actually made. Cast our mind back a few years though. So I remember when Take Two announced the the release or or the upcoming release of Red Dead Redemption 2. Now the first Red Dead Redemption was a massively popular game, so there was an incredible amount of hype for this. I remember Take Two stock spiked on the news and, and was, you know, Really, really, there was a lot of excitement about it. But then the game was pushed out and again and again. It was pushed out multiple times. And this really caused a lot of volatility for Take-Two stock. Is that a risk we might have um, this time like, around again that, you know, the, the, the anticipation of this game release is baked into the price and then it's pushed out and, and there's volatility? Or on the other hand, if the game turns out to be a flop, could that be a big impact on the company's bottom line for a few years? Certainly delays, I believe, don't really matter. It's as simple as that. Because, you know, uh, Take-Two set the scene, as it were, for Grand Theft Auto 6, because, as you said, Red Dead Redemption 2 is delayed for ages. They kept missing their own release deadlines. And I can't even recall how many 
missed deadlines there were uh but there was at least two restatements of release dates and i don't know what was delayed two years or thereabouts but either way buyers waited impatiently and they did not cancel their buy decision they went online and they complained like hell and they kicked the door in of gamestop the minute it hit the shelves and took a week off work to get lost in you know the wild west where, where they belong but um so i, I believe delays really won't f affect the um long-term investability of of a biz of of a games developer not in the slightest now is it to your question about if it's a flop well it's true that a flop would hit the bottom line but we're not talking about a moonshot anymore like when netflix released stranger things or squid games for example they didn't know if it would be a hit or a miss for all the analytics and you know crowd testing whatever you call it um they didn't know if it was be hit or miss now they can tell with absolute certainty uh, that their sequels to varying levels will be massive hits and the same goes for gta so when you look at a title that has proven itself with 6.5 billion dollars worth of sales and you know how to do it i don't believe there's a risk that it will be a flop and gamers are are fickle bunch not fickle but they hold their game developers to the highest standards i think it, someone who who wants to play a game will forgive it missing a release date but will be less forgiving of glitches bugs or yeah. non-engaging gameplay so i think there are two different categories a delay i don't believe is anyway as bad as a flop and i think a flop is very predictable and unlikely when it's a sequel yeah i was just going to say That's you it. seem to have insulted the entire gaming <laughs> population out there what were you going to say mike Wait, what did no, I say? I just saying that... <laughs> you said they were fickle. <laughs> you walked it back pretty quick. Uh, no, I'm just going to reiterate the point. Like Take Two have showed in the past and with delays that they're going to prioritize the gameplay and make sure that mm. they're releasing the optimum product. And I think that's the important thing because yeah, they know the longevity. They know the longevity of a franchise like this and the damage. That's quite a poor game could work. What I think is quite interesting is I thought Red Dead Redemption 1 was the best game I ever played. I thought it was absolutely astounding, shocking. And then I bought Red Dead Redemption 2 and it just didn't engage me. The graphics were better and the the scenery was more, more beautiful, but I it just didn't grab me. But if and when they released Red Dead Redemption 3, I'll still buy it because I thought Red Dead Redemption 1 was so good, which shows, at least in a, in a use case of one, the long tail of customer delight. Yeah, I think a lot of companies as well learned, I think it was Cyberpunk was the game released two years ago now, probably, and it was a massive flop. And it was that they had rushed, rushed the development of it. So I think, yeah, gamers, not that I can really include myself in that group, but I think they prefer delays and, and getting a good product at the end rather than a, a glitchy product. So so let's move on then. Mike, last week you got Rory and Anne-Marie to do a quick fire round on some of the companies that had reported earnings in the last week. So I'm going to blatantly rip you off this week and ask you and Emma to do another TLDR on some more companies that reported in the week just gone. So really quick, just want to hear how they do the top line uh, top line figures. Uh, let's go to Chegg first. Mike, they reported on Tuesday. And according to the stock price anyway, it seemed to be good news for the company. Yeah, big and much needed boost for Chegg after earnings. Uh, I think, well, last time I checked, this is before recording, the stock was up about 20% in the report. And it looks like kind of there isn't as much of a glut in demand as they expected. I think there's an overwhelming sense of this isn't as bad as we feared after Q3. 
how you remember the stock fell like 40 something percent in a day and yeah. it was kind of abandoned ship time so this is kind of steady the ship a bit uh there's also promising signs of international growth too and the company bought back seven percent of its shares in the quarter so it took advantage of this kind of depressed share price as well okay cool uh next up is twitter so how did the first quarter without jack dorsey go yeah decent report from twitter um again the street seemed happy enough with it when I saw it last. Uh, engagement is looking good. It added 25 million monetizable daily active users, uh, which puts it relatively on track for its target of 315 million by the end of 2023. 24 of these 25 million were from international markets. So I think this was indicated as a main target to grow these mm. uh, daily active users. Um, engagement as well, 35% increase in daily signups and 25% percent increase in uh, those who created a new account or reactivated an older one. So I think for once in Twitter's life, it's actually comparing well against Facebook, which saw its first drop in engagement in users. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, <laughs> I think it's clear the IDFA is less of an issue for Twitter, but this is probably because its ad targeting was never that good anyway. Um, <laughs> but, silver linings, Mike, silver linings. Yeah, but I found, I found this tweet. Um, tweet on Twitter, obviously, about Twitter. Uh, so Twitter's annual revenue is up 16 times since its IPO in 2013. And Twitter stock is down 10% since the IPO. <laughs> that, that pretty much just sums up Twitter. Uh, let's move yeah. on then, Emmett. Emmett, coming over to you, Chipotle Mexican Grill, they reported earlier this week. Um, it's been a tough couple of months for the restaurant industry in general. So how did Chipotle fare? Very, very well. So they reported on Tuesday, what's their fourth quarter earnings, and um, it really completely beat expectations. Uh, their growth was driven by the digital boom, as they call it, and it accounted for 42% of sales. It was amazing. 42% of uh, of Chipotle's burritos were ordered in-app. So the revenue came in at $2 billion, and what was expected was $1.96 billion. And in the fast-moving world of the stock market, that's the type of things uh, big money look at when, when they see a quarterly earnings. And then its earnings per share came in at about $5.58 versus $5.28 expected. So, um, yeah, so in the, in the full year, they, their revenue increased 26% from the year prior to $7.5 billion. So it's a, it is doing very well. Chipotle is really uh, pipping the trend and managed to survive the, the troubled waters of, of coronavirus very, very well. So let's yeah. give it up for burritos. It's very good stock. It's very good stock. <laughs> that, that's a new impression. I, mean, I haven't heard that one before. <laughs> so let's move that, on. I'm not going to say what country because I can at least say you were wrong if we get a letter of complaint. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's hear from Disney then to finish out. So how's uh -huh. the pandemic recovery going on over at the House of the Mouse? Oh, brilliant. So they reported the day after Chipotle. So they reported last evening for us. Uh, so they added 11.8 million Disney Plus subscribers in their Q1, which brought the total wow. number of subscribers to Disney Plus to 130 million subscribers, which beat expectations. And their CEO uh, reaffirmed that their subscriber target of 230 million to 260 million by 2024. So let's put that in context. Netflix currently has 222 million 
subscribers. And Disney Plus look is saying they're going to exceed that by 2024. Overall revenue increased uh, 34% to 20, about $22 billion in the quarter. And uh, of course, to speed analyst estimates and, and just like the other stocks we described, it, it, it went up in after hours trading. I have to say Disney is, Disney is the ultimate own it for the rest of your life stock as yeah. far as I'm concerned, because it has its fingers into every single sector and industry out there. You couldn't even believe, I think it's a wonderful yeah. business. And I was, I was really- shocked to see. Mm. I was reading the report earlier and I saw even that their parks and experiences has really recovered too. So it's really yeah. just that thing, you know, if people aren't sitting at home watching Disney Plus, they're probably going mm-hmm. to Disneyland. So it's, uh, it's really a win-win for them. Um, wait till, wait till I, it buys Peloton. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on then before we get in, we go down that rabbit hole. So what's going on in the My Wall Street app at the moment? So we published our latest stock of the month report on Monday. Uh, with all the market volatility going on at the moment, many people might call this company kind of a safer, more conservative investment, but the stock is up more than 50% in the past year, and it's been a triple bagger over the past five years. So this could be just the diversification you need in your portfolio at a time like this. In addition, we're also publishing our exclusive Stock of the Month podcast in my Wall Street this coming Monday. In this, you can listen to Rory and me chat about the Stock of the Month pick in more detail this podcast can only be found in the My Wall Street app, though. So if you want to check it out, just go to mywallstreet.com and sign up there. We've also this week added audio descriptions to our articles within My Wall Street, too. So if there's an article from Mike who's it's 3000 words and you just don't have time to read all that. You can listen to it now. So make sure to jump in and check those that new feature out as well. It's really cool. Mailbag. This week's mailbag. We're taking a question from Andrew. This came in to us via email. So thanks for getting in touch, Andrew. So he asked... What investment books do you recommend for someone with an intermediate knowledge of stocks if they're looking to take that next step? Um, and I can see a big, massive bookshelf in your background there. Uh, so any book recommendations for Andrew for an intermediate investor? Yeah, I have a few here, James. I usually give books away after I've read them, actually, and I only hang on to the ones that I've committed to rereading or dipping into again. So uh, I'm going to go with a softback, which is about the same size uh, as One Up on Wall Street, which we all know is is uh, our favorite book around here in, in my Wall Street. Um, but the, the book I'm going to go with is called 100 Baggers, Stocks That Return 100 to 1 and How to Find Them, which is a mouthful. But just if you stick 100 Baggers into Amazon, you'll get it. It's written by Christopher, Christopher Mayer. And what he does is he analyzes in a very comprehensive way the attributes of stocks out there today that look like they will grow 100 fold in the future. And it's a really, it's the most authoritative study that I know of on businesses that look likely to grow 100 fold because you only need a couple of these or even one of these to change your, your situation. Um, and and it's, a, it's absolutely great book because it reduces it down to something you can just simply screen for and look at. Um, and he says, if I recall, the most powerful stock moves tend to be during extended periods of growing earnings accompanied by expanding PE ratio, which makes sense, you know, yeah. when you think the, ma- the maths of it. So uh, he talks, he goes into the attributes of these 100 baggers. They uh, they enjoy a good ROE, return on equity, and um, 15% or more is what he, he says, and a company that can reinvest its profits at a good, strong rate. And uh, so he works through it, but what you're left with is a checklist that you can compare against your investments. And shameless plug, 
uh, 100 baggers, uh, the criteria within 100 baggers, I apply to all the stocks that I buy in the Horizon service that I run from my Wall Street, as you know. So you can read the book or just listen to you. Yeah, most people, <laughs> the vast majority, would just rather read the book. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, though. Thanks for that, Emmett. So that book is 100 baggers. Um, I don't, I, I haven't read that. Mike, I think I've heard you talk about that before. Yeah, definitely worth the read. He has a he has hmm. a chapter called the Coffee Can Portfolio. I yeah. think you put like five or ten businesses into a coffee can and forget about it for twenty years. Um, really good. I think it encapsulates a lot of what we're trying to do at my Wall Street Wealth. So I would definitely recommend it too. Better than Harry Potter. Uh, different Harry Potter. <laughs> Let's move on. <laughs> Let's move on then, finish out today with an elevator pitch as usual. So keeping it simple this week, I just want you guys to pitch me a stock you're researching at the minute. Mike, coming over to you first. Okay, so I took this one very literal. Um, for my elevator pitch this week, I'm pitching an elevator company. So oh, Otis is one of the largest manufacturers of elevators and escalators in the world. It's 170 years old. Uh, it's only actually been on the market for two years. It was spun out of uh, United Technologies, which is now Raytheon Technologies. I like it because it has it has one of the best business models in the world, really. It was the razor and blade before the razor and blade. So once a contractor puts <laughs> an ele elevator into a building, it'll have to continuously service and maintain it, meaning that through a single contract, Otis can have decades of recurring revenue. It actually makes more money from the maintenance, repair, and overhaul side of the business than actually putting in new elevators. Um, so yeah, the stock's a little bit on the pricey side, but I think it's an amazing business. I'm very interested. Sorry, yeah, you old? did write about it in the in the My Wall Street app. What I was going to ask are, are, are elevators older than Razor and Blades? Oh, well, I'd say Gillette Mac 3s anyways. <laughs> <laughs> Great company. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely an interesting one. I left the field one. Emmett, what about you? What stock are you looking at at the moment? Well, as is the case sometimes, James, I'm going to talk about a stock that I was assessing on the suspicion that it's in deep value, but I have absolutely decided to pass on. Uh, so I'm not investing in this business for ethical reasons, I think, um, but I but it is an interesting story to share. And the business is called uh, OpFi, which is short for Opportunity Financial ticker OPFI. And it took my interest after its back last summer with the boast of being the only profitable listing of its type. And as far as I know, the former CEO of TD Ameritrade, uh, Joe uh, Magolia, I think is his name. It was his back that acquired it in a, an $800 million deal. Anyway, the business provide loans to 60 million Americans who have no access to credit. And I, they have a very convincing narrative around being a force for good, that everybody is entitled to have a line of credit to do those nice things that you need to be able to do in life and for emergency situations. And what I wanted to understand was, are they actually a force for good? Or is this the finance equivalent of Purdue, who were like the makers of OxyContin and a subject of <laughs> one of my favorite shows on Disney called uh, Dope Sick. But anyway, um, 
it's not black or white, but thanks to some help from Anne-Marie um, and her investigative powers, we found that uh, on the 6th of April last year, OpFi, and I'm reading directly from a, a legal website, OpFi allegedly charged illegal interest rates of up to 198%, more than eight times higher than the district's rate cap uh, to 4,000 people and falsely claimed its high-cost loans help build credit. And then in the Chicago in a Chicago Sun piece, uh, we learned that OpFi was getting around interest rate uh, restriction by routing their loans through uh, out-of-state banks, which is a loophole in many states' laws, um, which is legal. Uh, but in the state of Illinois, apparently, OpFi are lobbying to have that law changed. So I don't want to enter into a 10-year marriage, as is my intention when I invest in a business, with a company that is re- reliant upon a governmental loophole to operate, uh, never mind your personal ethical beliefs, um, but that is something that they're reliant on. So uh, that loophole could be closed in any other states at any time, and that would basically kill the market. So OpFi is not for me, um, or OpFi, no, hold on, OpFi, not for me, or OpFi, make me cry. Uh, hold on, I better, let me, hold on, leave it with me. I'm sure I can do something better. Anyway, no, I'm not investing. <laughs> well, there, there we go. Maybe we should move the elevator pitches to pitches for stocks you shouldn't invest in. And um, yeah. that's it for today's show. Uh, so remember, if you have any questions you'd like to answer, elevator pitches you'd like to tackle, make sure to get in touch. Also, if you if you want to contribute to our ongoing discussion on NFTs, make sure to get in touch either. You can find us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ. Find us on TikTok. That's at MyWallStreet. Or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and like or review us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on thanks for joining us today and we'll talk to you next week my business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments then tap to pay on iphone and stripe came along and changed everything With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamline my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards, Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com tapiphone tap iPhone.